I entitled to this morning's message, O King, My King, and we're going to talk about a king by the name of Hezekiah. But I want to begin with this. We have talked all year long about what it is to live a life of worship. And so now we're going to assess whether or not we have any change. So on that sheet that was handed to you at the front door is an assessment test. Now you didn't know you were going to be tested when you went, when you went to church, but we'll spring that on you. So I actually want you to grab the pen in the seat in front of you. Hopefully you'll return it because the last service, if they didn't, you don't have a pen. Uh, if you have a pen, I want you to literally go through the assessment as we read through it on your sheet. And then I'm going to lead you to the fill in the blank here in a second. But in order for all of us to be on the same page, let me tell you simply what a life of worship is. A life of worship is this. You live as if God matters. That's a life of worship. Worship means to attribute worth to someone or something. Do you live in such a way that people around you know that God's important to you? If I was to ask your friends, hey, what are they into? Will they list God's super important to them? God's the number one important thing in their life. Are you talking as if God is valuable? Are you acting as if God is valuable? Have you realigned your priorities as if God's priorities were the priorities of your life? This is what we're trying to analyze. We've been examining it all year long. People ask me, well, did it, did it change the church? I can tell you absolutely it did in many different ways. But before we shift over into a new year with a brand new concept that we're going to hammer home, I want to make sure that we have soaked in this because there is no point in going through a whole year of going to church, hearing a message saying, oh, that's great, and there's no change in your life. Ultimately, we end up wasting our time. So let's assess it. First thing on your list, are you now living a life of worship? Yes or no? I don't want to hear excuses. I don't want to hear, well, kind of in this. Yes or no? Now, it may not be a perfect life of worship. It may be filled full of all types of garbage. I get that. But are you living a life of worship? Number two, what makes that true? Whether the answer is yes or no, what makes that so? What evidence, what proof is there that you are living a life of worship or not? What makes that true? Is it because you now handle your time differently? Is it because you handle your finances differently? What makes that true for you? Number three, how has this living like that impacted your life? Is there any change and impact from it? Because if it's not, it may not be legit. So what is the impact of living a life of worship or not had on your life? For example, are you moving towards hope? Or do you see increasing despair? Are you seeing more purpose? Or are you feeling like everything's a waste? What is the outcome of how you're living? Last one, and I really want you to write these down. What three things, what three ways do you plan to continue living a life of worship and making it a reality? What three things? I want you to write those down because we have to have a plan or we're not going to get it done. So is that, let's say for some of you, you know what? I've been talking about needing to get back into the word of God for over a year and I'm just not doing it. 
Maybe you need to realign your schedule so that you can do that, that you can spend a little bit of time in God's Word every day. Let's say that's three minutes while you eat your cereal. I eat fast. So as you maybe have breakfast, you open up the Word of God. It's sitting there. It's on the counter. You're ready to slide it over, and you spend a little bit of time in God's Word. Is that going to be a plan for you so that you have a steady diet of it in your life? Or is it, you know what, I found that I do so much for God, I'm never with God, I need to slow down and do some solitude and some silence in my life, and I need to be with God, I need to understand what it is to not live off everybody's faith around me, I need to engage by myself on my own. Is that it for you? What three things are you going to do to make sure that you're living a life of worship? It may even be that you go out and buy some worship CDs so that wherever you travel, you pop those in and there's more descriptions of God in your mind. Whatever it is, write them down. All right? Okay. Here's one of the problems. When I ask you phrases like, are you living a life of worship? You'll immediately go, especially you gentlemen, because we do this even more than ladies, you will compartmentalize. And you will say, well, yeah, in these areas, I'm awesome for the Lord. These areas, I'm really dedicated. These areas, I'm very disciplined. But over here, God is non-existent. Here's the challenge. God will not be compartmentalized. So for us to say, I'm really great when I'm in church, I'm terrible when I'm out of church, is unacceptable. Because God's not going to go along with that. If he is Lord, he is Lord of all. He's not Lord of part. He's not Lord of one segment. He's not Lord with some hang-ups. He's Lord or he's not Lord. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. We are called to bring our whole kingdom under his rule. We are called to bring our whole kingdom under his rule. That means in every possible aspect, whether it is seen or unseen, to the people around us and we're about to read a story of one of the greatest if not the greatest king of the southern part of the israeli kingdom his name's hezekiah and he will lead such dramatic extreme reform in his nation risking everything including his life that god might be honored in every piece of his portion of the nation would you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, it's either under that seat or the seat maybe a couple down from you. And the page number in those Bibles is 324. If you're not familiar with the Word of God and it, you don't quite know where you're going, page 324 should make it a little easier. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, in our remaining time, we are going to open up your scriptures. And Father, we ask that you would make it alive and active to us, that you would shower us with understanding. That Lord, that it would not be merely academic, not merely historical, but Father, that it would be life transformative. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. They got any history buffs out there? History? Yeah, anybody like history? Awesome, three of you. Okay, everyone else, you're bored. Just hang with me. This is what it says. Eight verses, powerful story. But we have to understand the background or it doesn't make any sense. So here we go. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, 
Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, normally we would blow right past that. Oh, it's a bunch of names. We don't like those names. Doesn't make any sense. Go on. Well, we're not going to get the story until we understand what it just said. Here's how it goes. All year long, we studied two kings of Israel, the first and the greatest. The first king of Israel was King Saul. Yes, so we know that. Was he a good king? No, not really. He kind of lived for himself, not so much for the Lord. The second king on the throne was Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, and his name was David. And then last week when we were together, we actually got to see the handoff to the third king of Israel, David's son, and his name is Solomon. Now, after Solomon, things went south immediately. Now, we're going back about 2,900 years in history. You're going to look and you go, well, maybe it's mythology. I'll get to that. It's straight up history. We go back 2,900 years and we have bad king, kind of good king, then medium king. Solomon started out awesome and he kind of fell apart towards the end. But because of a promise to him and a promise to David, God did not allow the nation to schism underneath his reign, but allowed it to happen under his son. The minute Solomon's son got on the throne, the nation split in two. There was a civil war and it was literally north versus south. The north became known as Israel. The south became known as Judah. And they had different kings. So whenever you try to read the story from where we left off throughout the rest of Second Kings or throughout the rest of Chronicles, you're going to begin to see that the Bible has to say, well, this guy was in the north, this guy was in the south. And they served concurrently. So you have a lot of names that spin around the air. The north had a bunch of psychotic kings. The north had terrible leadership. And because of that reason, the north gets taken over by the enemy faster than the south. Because of the judgment of God sweeping through in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was taken captive, pulled out of their land by the Assyrian Empire. In 586 BC, the south followed suit. Over a hundred years later, why did they hang on longer? Because of kings like the king we're about to read, Hezekiah. There were good kings and there were bad kings. This one happens to be the best. Now, what's intriguing about how this ties in historically is that I told you that in 586, the Babylonian Empire takes over the south. What's intriguing is that Hezekiah, in his day, 135 years before it happens, Babylon wasn't a big deal. He actually invites them over to hang out, shows them around his kingdom. They go home with their notes, and 135 years later, they use those notes to storm Jerusalem and take it over. That all happened under Hezekiah's watch. He didn't know that at the time. It didn't happen during his lifetime, but he was a part of it. Last thing I'll say is this. In 1998, there was an archaeological dig that was being done over in Israel, as there are day in and day out. And they found an impression of a stamp. And on that stamp, it says, King Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. Why is that important? Well, we already know that we have Hezekiah's tunnel, but so many times everybody chalks these things up to, oh, well, it's the Christians and the Jews, they're just making stuff up. 
It's not real in history. No, it is real in history. And there is actual evidence that you can go see that is buried, and sometimes we don't find it till 1998. For how many thousands of years did that lie hidden? What else are we going to find that consistently backs up Scripture? Because I tell you, we've already dug up thousands upon thousands of bits of information. This is history. We move forward. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. Now, he actually reigned with his dad for 14 years. His dad, King Ahaz, was a horrible man. His dad led the whole nation into pagan worship. His dad, who for 14 years, not only did he have to be embarrassed by the actions of his father, but he had to be partly on the throne knowing that he didn't have full control and he wasn't allowed to change what his dad was doing. 14 years of frustration. Maybe some of you know what it's like to serve under a very bad leader for years, over a decade. David learned how to be a king under King Saul, a very poor king who wanted to kill him at every opportunity. But I'll tell you this, King David never wanted to be like Saul again. So it may be that God has you under the leader he has you so that you'll never be like that ever. King Hezekiah is nothing like his dad. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, 18 by himself, 11 with his son Manasseh. He's going to be on the throne a really, really long time. And the impact is pretty powerful. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. He started young, but he started right. Here's the first message I have for you. I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your mom is. I don't care what kind of baggage and garbage and dysfunction and generational sin that is in your life. God is looking at you and he's going to ask you one question. The same question that he asked Peter after Peter denied him three times. Jesus asked him the same question three times. And he's going to ask you this question today. Do you love me? I didn't ask if your parents loved me. I didn't ask if your parents followed me. I didn't ask if you have a Christian history. I didn't ask if you have a Christian family. What I asked is, do you love me? Because despite what happened before you, we're starting brand new. You are a separate life. We are breaking that chain and we are doing what God asked us to do. So I can understand why you want to talk a lot about the garbage that has happened to you throughout history. I can understand why you want to talk about the dysfunction. And truly, some of that has made you who you are today. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you're on your own. And the decisions you make for your life will stand. God is not going to allow you to make excuses based on your history. Because if you look at all the great men and women of Scripture, the majority of them had really, really bad home lives. Hmm. Verse 3, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you can simply say that about your life, everything's different. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. What's his dad's name? Ahaz. 
Why are we saying David is his father? Because he's a lot more like David than he is Ahaz. And father in Hebrew ancient literature means ancestor or descendant. And so they would trace back to the most powerful one, the one that was most like them, the one that was like them in spirit. David happened to be a man after God's own heart. So when Hezekiah shows up and begins to change the nation, they said, you look a lot like David. That's pretty awesome. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It says, he removed the high places, broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. What? What does that mean? Remove the high places. Well, here's how it works. It was very practical. If you think about in that land, there are rolling hills and there are uh, bumps in the ground. So whenever there was a higher place, literally up higher than everybody else, you would put special stuff on that area because people could look up and see it. Also, it kind of had this idea that up on the top you were closer to the heavens, and so they would make those holy places. Now, many times in Israel, they would make the high places places to worship Yahweh, the one true God. But in periods of history, they would make them pagan ritual locations. And indeed, during Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad's reign, they had fallen completely into pagan worship. Now, in that day, one of the most popular pagan gods to worship was a guy by the name of Baal. Baal was the one where, if you remember the story of Elijah going head to head with 450 prophets of Baal, they set up altars and they said, whatever God responds with fire, that one we will serve. You remember that? That was the prophets of Baal. Now, in their mythology, Baal had a girl in his life. Her name was Asherah. She was worshipped as a goddess. Israel has shrines to her all over the place. Totem poles in her honor. Pillars, monuments, all these types of things. In God's territory. They're completely about all the other gods. There is compromise everywhere. They kind of worship God, kind of worship this. I mean, it looks a lot like us. And there are places, high places in our lives that are set up to things other than God. Remember, Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. You remember that? Our response to that is, sure I can. I've been doing it for the last 52 years. What Jesus is saying is that cannot be. You're not actually serving who you think you're serving. When they go head to head, you know who wins. In that same way, Israel thought they could play the game that they would worship God and worship everything else. Kind of like we worship God and we worship materialism. Kind of like we worship God and we worship self. Kind of like we worship God and yet we worship what? Right? You fill in the blank. Hezekiah said, that's not going to happen. And he went through and tore them all down. He is the only king that is listed to have removed completely the high places. Because no one could handle it rightly. How many people did he take off? Everybody. The high places, the Asherah poles were all there because people wanted them there. So... He takes leadership, goes through, decimates everything everybody likes. Everybody hates him. He risked his entire career and life on this choice. Radical reformation. Now you tell me, coming up in this political season, name one candidate who is going to say, I'm standing for God and I'm going to do everything possible to irritate everyone in the whole world 
and they're still going to get elected. That's not going to happen. That would never happen here. You've got to play the game, work with people. Not Hezekiah. Now you go, well, he wasn't elected. You're right, but he can be assassinated. And that happened to all the other kings. People were dying and being killed. He risked his life for reformation. Because he believed in it so strongly. All right, let me show you my cards on where this message is going to end. In like seven minutes, I'm going to wrap up and here's going to be my big tell, right? Let me share it with you because I I, you can't miss this. He cleaned up his kingdom like we need to clean up our lives. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's not super rocket science. So when I start making these points, I need you to start tracking them with your life and go, oh, well, maybe in this area I have a high place. Oh, what about this? I got to go radical here. Well, what about, right? That's the point. Let's keep moving forward. He makes the tough decisions for the Lord. It says, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. They did what? Anybody remember the bronze snake story? Okay, bronze snake story. Here's how it goes. I believe it's in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Moses, as they're traveling around the wilderness, is leading the people of God who are a bunch of losers. Okay? Now, they were whining and complaining, and God's not a good leader, and God never takes care of us, and I wish we were back in Egypt, and it was constant grumbling and complaining and whining and all this bad stuff about God. Well, God gets ticked off periodically, and God got ticked off one time and said, you know what, you guys are irritating me so much, I'm making a bunch of snakes to come and bite you. Fair enough. So he makes poisonous snakes come into the territory and they start biting everybody. And everybody's like, oh, I've been poisoned. I'm falling apart. I'm dying. And Moses intercedes for him. And he's like, God, we got to step away. I can't, I can't just allow everyone to die. And he said, all right, well, let's teach him a lesson. I need you to make a snake on a pole, a bronze snake on a pole. And I want you guys to picture, remember the veterinarian symbol, how that little snake is on the pole? Think of that thing. He said, I want you to put that on a pole. I want you to lift it up because in an act of faith, they will have to humble themselves, look up at something stupid. Now, nobody's going to think that they're going to get healed by looking up at a dumb snake on a pole. But if you believe God at his word, you're willing to do stupid things. And so he said, we're going to make a point here. Lift up the pole. If they look at the bronze snake, they will be healed. Remember that? And a bunch of people were healed. Awesome. Should have been a great time in their history. What did they do with it? Well, like we do, they ruin everything. They grabbed the pole and went, oh my gosh, this was so powerful and amazing. Why don't we make it our God? Let's worship it. Oh, this is such a great pole. What? It's a pole. Oh, it's an amazing. You remember all that stuff that happened back in the past where people were like getting bitten and then they were getting healed. It was all crazy and wow. And they're making offerings to it. That is so human nature. It is us. God does something amazing in our lives, and we don't walk forward with God. We look back and go, do you remember that time I was walking with God? It was awesome. What do you mean? Why are you looking backwards? Look forward. What are you doing now? Don't sit there and make, oh, the glory days. I'm going to be all about when I had all this great stuff with God. What are you doing now? You walking with God now? Because that's what matters. Don't live in the past. It says, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Is that us? Because that's a life of worship. And it was during brutal, difficult, and scary times. This was not cakewalk. This is like I'm going to die on a daily basis kind of life. So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. 
he was the best. Why? Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. That means life couldn't shake him. No matter what came into his life and tried to rip him apart and cause him distraction and knock him out of the game, he held fast to the Lord and would not let go. Is that you? Or are you easily derailed? Ups and downs with God. Oh, I'm really into Christianity. No, look, I'm living for myself. It doesn't matter, right? That's not Hezekiah. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. The only reason his story is so awesome is because of who he's connected to. Neat thing about that? We're connected to the same God. And the Lord was with him. Yahweh was with him. That, is all, that phrase is only used of one other king in all of the Bible. King David. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Even in little things. I mean, stupid stuff. That's not spiritual. It's not deep. It was like his job. I had an opportunity when I was over in Israel. I went through Hezekiah's tunnel. He literally did a, had engineers do something that was impossible at the time. He dug through solid rock from two different sides, rediverted the waters of Israel, and dug a tunnel through solid rock 500 meters how do you do that without any of our modern day stuff? Literally, they're digging and boring through solid rock. But I got a chance to walk through that. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Everything he touched prospered. Hmm. With a life submitted to God, you can get things done. Right? He, he, he was blessed. But it cost him a lot. Here's what you didn't hear me say. If you do what God wants you to do, you're going to have health and wealth. That's garbage. It's not biblical. It's not legitimate. It's not right. It's not reality. If that's what you're viewing, drop it. Because the Bible doesn't think that, and Job certainly doesn't buy it. If you do what is right, you will be where God wants you. That's success. It doesn't matter how the world sees it. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life on the outside. It means that God, your heavenly father, is pleased with you. And there's nothing greater than that. That is what you live for. That's the purpose of life. When you do things God's way, then he's in charge and he can do amazing things. But it doesn't mean that you're going to get what you want. That is not correct. It says that it cost him a lot. Look at this. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Well, his dad completely was serving him. But he broke away. Did that cost him his life? Almost. He had the big difficult time because Assyria was raining down on him. At one point, he defied them so much that they sent an army of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to wipe out Jerusalem. But Hezekiah, along with the prophet at the time, cried out to God, God, you have to save us. We can't win this war. We're going to get wiped out. And that night in the valley, the angel of the Lord came through the valley and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So they were all dead by morning. That was Hezekiah. And he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And he cleaned up the garbage that his dad left. Here's the recap as we close. I'm going to give you three 
tools. Three tools of what we covered this year. It's a recap. It's not brand new. It's three tools on what a life of worship is. I went back through and examined the entire year, and it boils down to three things. They're pretty simple. So if you take notes, you write these things down. Number one, God is God and we are not. There you go. Got to start there. If you don't start there, we're not starting anywhere. God is God and we are not. Never forget that God gave you his blessings. God gave you every good thing that you have. But God tends to give us more than we expect, both in trial and in blessing. But remember, it's a waste to live for anything else. It's God's way or no way. It's why you were built. We are God's display to the world on his power. Therefore, it gets pretty messy sometimes. It's not always what we want. But do not touch what God says don't touch. You can either wait for what's right or rush what is wrong. What are you going to do? Number two. Your private worship is almost more important than your public worship. Your private worship is almost more important than your public worship. Why? Because God wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. And your pride isn't going to get there. But inside, we need to understand, either will or faith will define our life. When our passions rule us, we die. And when no one else notices, God sees. No one is immune to temptation. Only provided for. And it's better to run than remain a monster. So we say no to ourselves, yes to God, because what God says matters most, and sometimes doing the right thing is hard work. Number three. God runs lives given to him fully. God runs lives given to him fully, and you want him to run it. Because there is no one like our God. As scary as God's will is, it's where he lives, and it's where you want to be. And if you're living for him totally, he will fight his battle successfully. And you cannot kill what God wants to live. All right? What did you just hear me say? All those phrases I just said were the fill in the blanks from the entire year. It all boils down to those three things. Living a life of worship is not complicated. It's messy, but it's not complicated. Living a life of worship is living and making every decision and every thought and intention of your heart what God wants. And although sometimes it's hard to discern, I want you to go with what you know. And if you need to begin with simply this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you're starting on a solid foundation. Final word is this before we go to the video and close. I understand a complicated Christian life. I live it. I understand messing up. I understand compromise. I understand a bunch of garbage in my life and your life. I understand not doing everything right. So I understand when Christian lives are less than stellar. But let me tell you what I don't understand. I don't understand how you can live your life if you don't have Jesus at all. That I can't figure out. I don't know how you put one foot in front of the other every day. It's the only way I get up in the morning. I do not understand how you have any understanding of why you're here 
apart from him. So I'm not going to sit there and pressure you into receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's between you and him. But I will tell you this. What you're ultimately looking for that is good will only be found in him. And the real you will never emerge until he is within you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, today we have had an amazing walk and a journey with you, Lord, with brand new lives of these babies.